As photographers, we're often asked to identify ourselves by the subject matter we photograph, or to identify ourselves professionally. If you're a working photographer, you're a commercial, editorial, or fine art photographer, and somehow that's supposed to define who you are and what you do. But such labels aren't often accurate or even helpful, as they don't speak to a photographer's vision and body of work. Lori Lyons could be categorized in any of these three categories, but the most interesting part of her work is that much of her imagery could fit perfectly into any of those three. She is a photographer whose work is a direct reflection of who she is rather than what she does. Well, Lori, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. In in doing my research on you, I realized I could talk to you about so much, but we only have about 45 minutes, so I'm going to try and keep it relatively concise. But one of the things that I read that I found really interesting was that you describe your work as a photographer as as an adventure. And I don't see a lot of people describing it as such. They use a lot of ways to describe their, their work, but I was really struck by that. Can you talk a little more about how you, how you see that? Well, I think the adventure um, description is completely accurate in terms of my work. Um, the reason why I was attracted to photography, I didn't even really realize that at, at the time at a young age, but... My mother um, had subscriptions to magazines like Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair in the mid-80s, early 90s. So when I was, you know, going to the mailbox and getting the magazines, um, you would see these incredible covers of Rolling Stone and throughout the magazine, like really beautiful images. But along that, with that was really interesting text about who all these artists were it's sort of the crazy lives that they lived. And um, at the time, I was also looking at magazines like Interview Magazine that had a lot of work by, you know, at the time I didn't realize it, a, a young, great photographer like Stephen Mizell, um, Details Magazine, which at the time was like a, a New York underground club magazine, completely different than what it is today. Mm-hmm. And I was also looking at a lot of album covers that my father bought and collected. So I was looking at all this great graphic design and photography and reading autobiographies and reading Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair. And I realized that once I started to really gravitate towards photography as an art form and then also discovering, you know, the Magnum photographers, um, I realized not just the image is what drew me into it, but realizing that the people who took the images were living in times of history and events and in places that were just really beautiful, dramatic, interesting, and full of color and characters. So I think that the reason why I really love photography is because it allows me that passport to have a very interesting life if I choose to. So I go all over the world into different communities I photograph celebrities. I do all these things. And even though I love the photograph itself, it's really about the journey to take the photograph and all the things that happened outside of the photograph that really pulls me in. And you do a lot of traveling. I've seen that you've gone to Brazil, South America, and Africa. And one of the choices that you make, which is a very interesting one, is that you'll, like, for example, you'll take public transportation. You're not just going to go there and do the whole touristy thing. You're going to actually go and use, you know, the actual modes of transportation that the peoples in those communities go to. And you'll actually travel off the beaten path and go into areas where most tourists would not even consider going. And what does, what do those choices provide you? As, as a photographer and an artist that uh, you don't think you could get otherwise? Well, in terms, in terms of the transportation mode, I have to travel that way because, like a true New Yorker, I don't know how to drive. <laughs> so, I can't get into my SUV and, you know, have my, little, my own little capsule and sort of stay separated from the general population, and I don't have any desire to. So when I do um, go to other countries or other cities or states, 
I use public transportation, and one of the best things about that is is that you really get to see the landscape, whether it's rural or urban. You get to see it, smell it, sense it, and that's where you meet all of these other people that live and work and pass through these areas, and you hear the best stories, especially if you're traveling alone. You meet a lot of other people that gravitate towards you. They introduce you to other people. You see the real nooks and crannies and gems that if you're sort of going to the Hilton and you're renting a car, um, it's just a totally different experience. So when you kind of get like right into the center of like the, the fabric of those communities, what you're really getting is sort of the heart and soul and the texture of these people's lives and communities. And all of that comes across in the actual photographs that you create and also the writing that you do about these places. It just has a much more tangible texture to it overall. It's it's great what I see in your in your flag series, which you did both here in the States and, and abroad. And you tap into that, not only with the images that you make, but by also soliciting that these people actually write something about the the experience. Why don't you tell our listeners who aren't familiar with, with your flag series what inspired it, what it, what it's about, and and tell us a little bit about the process of approaching complete strangers and creating this kind of body of work. Well, with the flag series, um, the original flag series in the United States, I was really curious about all of these statistics that get thrown at the American public in the media. You know, percentages of people think this, yes, think no, agree, disagree. And I always just thought, you know, the most obvious question, well, who are these people that are getting polled? I've never been polled. I don't know anybody else who's been polled. Um, so I decided to go out and buy an American flag, a three-by-five-foot flag, a small notebook, my twins lens reflex camera, and a pen and a small tripod, and to start walking through neighborhoods uh, that I was not familiar with and where I didn't know people and just stopping them in the streets, in their communities, and saying, I want to take your photograph with this American flag. You can do anything you want with the flag. Pose any way that you're comfortable. I'll take your photograph, and I'm going to ask you to write your personal thoughts about how you feel about America. You can write about any subject that strikes you and be totally honest. And what you write is going to be printed along with your photograph. So when I was approaching people on the streets and explaining this, um, a couple of things happened. First of all, I'm a black female photographer, so people didn't weren't familiar with black female photographers or being approached by professional photographers. So immediately they were surprised, they were curious, and the first question they would consistently ask me was, why do you want to photograph me? I'm not famous, and who are you doing this for? Is this a job? So I would explain that I was a photographer, this is a project that I'm working on on my own, and I really just want to gather people's opinions and take their portraits. And the reason why I'm approaching them is because for some reason, whether it's the way they look or they sound or just gut instinct, they seemed interesting to me and seemed like they may have something interesting to to say. So with that, I also tell them that they're basically in complete control of the process. They can pose any way they want, and they can write and say whatever they want, and none of their text would be edited. So with that, people really felt comfortable. They were flattered. Um, They were excited because ordinary citizens at this point aren't usually asked what their true opinions are. So they felt like it was a great opportunity for them to stand out. So with that, I would hand them the flag. Well, first I would hand them the notebook and say, take your time, write whatever you want to write, and while you're writing, I'm going to set up the camera right here. So none of the subjects had to leave their immediate vicinity to be photographed. None of them had been prepped beforehand. They weren't expecting to be photographed, so they looked very ordinary. So they would finish writing their comments. I would give them the flag. And I would take, you know, maybe about five or six frames, portraits of them. And that would be pretty much the end of the process. But the 
point where I realized pretty quickly early in the series that I was onto something more than just a portrait project was when I was in Minnesota and I met this young mother and daughter. The mother looked like she was about 31 and the daughter said she was 13. And I gave them the book to write in and the daughter was writing and she said, Mommy, how do you spell beautiful? And she looked at her mother and then her mother looked at me. So I started to spell the word, the word beautiful. So then another second goes by and the daughter says, Mommy, how do you spell America? And the mother looked at me and I was really a bit surprised, but I spelled America and the daughter wrote America. And what struck me about that was once the interview was over with them, what blew me away was that both the mother and the daughter were born and raised in the United States. And the daughter was attending school, and neither one of them knew how to spell the name of the country. Mm. And I was like, wow, something's really going on in this country that isn't really being talked about. So that's when I knew that doing these interviews and photographing these people was going to be a way of sort of getting under the surface about the, the whole mythology about America. And that's what actually drew me into the project even more. And on a subconscious level, I didn't realize it at the time until years later, it was really an exploration of my own identity because my family were are immigrants from Jamaica. Then they joined the military. So I grew up sort of all over the world. So I think on a subconscious level, I was trying to figure out what America really means and how do I, along with a lot of other people, fit into that idea. Yeah, that's because that was one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, because you've you said in other interviews that your work, even if it's your commercial advertising work, is a reflection of you in some way. It's it's autobiographical. And, and that that project, I think, really kind of speaks to. Who can, who can claim to be an American or what is an American and what do they look like? And I think a lot of people who identify as American citizens often are, are surrounded by people that are like them, you know, in whatever community or whatever part of the country they're in. And I think that this series really sort of gives a perspective not only of what those people look like, but how they perceive themselves, their country, and, and specifically the flag. Yeah, it was definitely an eye-opener for all of the reasons that you just stated. And I don't think that's a question that can actually ever be completely answered when it comes to the U.S., because I think this country just changes so much. And we're one of the few countries that we kind of created our own myth and branding. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah. we believe in this certain idea of America very strongly, even if people who, you know, have a lot of issues with the government or how things are done or how things are handled, we all kind of still hold on to this idea of America being great and America looking the way we look. And, you know, the person next to you or in the other state is actually shocked when they see who you are yeah. because they don't necessarily think you fit in with their idea. And this came um, to my attention when once I was doing uh, an interview when the book had just come out in 2001, and the interviewer actually said to me, well, I don't think this really reflects America because there's too many minorities in this book. And I was like, wow, mm. <laughs> that's a crazy thing to say. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, this country exports as well as culture is it's its identity in terms of what it is to be an American. So when you started going outside of the United States and started photographing people from outside of the U.S. with the flag, what what surprised you in terms of how they perceived that, you know, that piece of fabric, the stars and stripes, and what they perceived as being? You know, that was an interesting exploration because when I was going to, especially throughout Europe, 
I realized for the first time, when I was a teenager, I lived in Europe. And at that time, you know, in the late 80s, late 80s, uh, everyone was very happy-go-lucky about America. Everyone loved America. They loved American culture. They loved the movies. They loved everything that we did, basically, for the most part. But when I went back again in 2007, it was really interesting because for the first time being abroad, I could get a real sense of people's feeling of the American flag and what that stands for as sort of overwhelming them and being too present in their lives and dominating their own culture. Um, and I got the sense that people wanted to respect America, but they wanted to have their own space so that their culture and their beliefs can be equally as heard and equally as distributed. And some people had real issues with American politics at that time, uh, especially foreign affairs. So it was also a contrast with their mixed feelings about America, mixed with the fact that in Europe in particular, they were starting to grapple with issues that we've been grappling with for a decade, such as nationalism, fundamentalism, uh, the lack of borders and becoming sort of one European mass and sort of losing their individual identities as countries when it came to their money and some of their politics, um, them dealing with issues about immigration as well. So it was just a time of real sort of change and sort of growing pain between other countries and their feelings about the United States at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the interesting things about that that body of work, and I think all all your work, is how much of a role the environment plays in in the photographs. Even with the portraits, the space that these people are occupying is is as as important and as revealing as you know the color of the skin of the subject or the clothes that they're wearing or the shoes that we're wearing. And that seems to pervade all of your all of your work. So, can you talk to me about why that is so important to how you see and how you end up photographing? I think when it comes to the environment, you're absolutely right. I'm pretty much obsessed with environments as far as photographing people. I somewhat rarely photograph people in studio spaces because I'm just not excited about studio spaces. So I actually always love to be on location, whether it's indoors or outdoors. And when I'm sort of roaming around and meeting these people in their communities, or even if I do a shoot that's a commercial shoot in some sort of environment, there's something that just clicks inside of me where being in a, you know, quote-unquote foreign space actually makes sense for me. Visually, my eyes really tune into the physical space, the arrangement of the space, and I can just really instinctively and quickly see where people should be standing or sitting or moving. It just all comes together really quickly for me. Um, and I think maybe a part of that is because growing up, again, my parents were in the military. We moved so often. And we, also, once we did move somewhere and get settled, we actually traveled a lot. So a lot of my sort of seeing the world has been on the move and constantly being in new locations and having to adapt and sort of become a chameleon on some levels. So I think with the camera, there's an extension of that that just seems very natural to me. But on a deeper level, what I love about environments is that, especially when it comes to people's personal environments, the way everyone arranges materials in their space, the way they paint the color of their house, the way they place flowers, uh, framed photographs, um, their doormats, everything about that that you see in a photograph says so much about who they really are, what their personal convictions are, what their cultural traditions are, what their economic levels are, what their educational levels are. So when I see that surrounding them, to me, that's really pertinent information is as important as the person themselves. The way people dress themselves 
that shows so much information about them is the same way they dress their environments and choose their environments. So when I'm taking a, a portrait of a person, it's not just a portrait of the person themselves. It's them in the environment. It's the whole picture that gives the viewer information and becomes sort of an autobiographical image of these people. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that you would approach people and they would see you as a, as a black woman with the camera and to some extent that they were caught off guard by that. And I'm wondering how have you, do you, have you seen that as sort of as an advantage um, to being able to access certain people in certain communities, not only just in the States, but abroad that other people who aren't, aren't that, um, would not have access to? Or do you think it's just the nature of your, your personality and how you approach people that provides you access? I think it's a mixture of both. I think that, you know, me walking around in different environments, that where people don't know me and I have my camera around my neck because I always have it out. I don't try to hide who I am. And when I explain to people what I'm doing, why I'm there, it's sort of a novelty to them. I just don't, the person that they're expecting to show up, if someone were to show up, is someone who looks like Anderson Cooper, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that that's a, a, an asset because what it does is that it sort of breaks away the barriers and they want to know who you are, and they want to talk to you, and they want to see your camera. And I think with my personality, I'm very easygoing in general, but one thing that I learned starting out was um, one of the jobs I had was assisting David Allen Harvey, who is a National Geographic photographer. And just observing him a few times as he worked, one of the things that I immediately learned was how he just knew how to become visible and invisible. He just had an ease where you see him, you see his camera, he's taking pictures, but people don't feel like he's up to something no good. So he was able to get access, just being very easygoing, being himself, being honest, and people just open up to that. And I realized, was observing him and going out on the streets and doing my own photography, that People have incredible radars, and they can sense if you're being genuine or if you're hiding something. So if the more open you are, the more relaxed, the more comfortable you are being in a space that you're not familiar to, and the more personable you are with people, the more access that you have. I think me being black and me being female, people notice me more which helps to strike up the conversations and open up the access. Mm. How does that play a role in terms of you negotiating the, the commercial and the advertising world and the editorial world where for, for the large part, the most, most of the people who make up the editorial staffs who are the art buyers are, you know, white male or, or, or female. Um, has that made well, any I sort think, of, you know, that's, um, I think that's a great question because, you know, when they hear my name, Lori Lyons, it's just sort of like a blank name. They, can, they can't immediately, you know, put an identity, an ethnic identity to that. And when I walk into certain meetings, um, people are like, oh, <laughs> you know, and I can tell <laughs> they're like, oh, wait, that's you. <laughs> and it's worked in both ways in a, in a very strange way. I've gone into meetings where I could tell people are surprised that I'm black, I'm female, and I took these photographs. But at the same time, I've had a lot of people who are black and Latino or Asian, and they've seen my work. And then when they actually meet me, they're surprised that I'm not white. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, I just think that, again, I think pe- in people's heads, in general, you have that idea of what does a photographer look like? And, you, you know, what do you see the most often? You see white male photographers. Um, for instance, I did a shoot a couple of months ago with Patti LaBelle, and I went to her home. She knew I was going to come and photograph her. And I'm setting up the equipment, and she's looking at me, and she's looking at me, and she goes, you're the photographer? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I'm a photographer. 
And I had to, you know, she knew it was me. And then she goes, wow. She said, it's always some dude. And, you know, she's been photographed for like 40 years. Yeah. Wow. And she, she, she's just shocked. She's like, you're the photographer? And it happened again. I went to shoot a, an image for um, Fortune magazine. And I went down to Baltimore to photograph the woman. She'd been photographed 10 million times. And I showed up, and she just could not believe I was a photographer. She was and, and surprised in a great way. Like, she was mm-hmm. ecstatic, but she was shocked. She was like, you're a photographer for Fortune magazine? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So it's just something that, unfortunately, there needs to be, you know, more women who are shooters commercially. There's a lot of great photographers who are women that do fine artwork and there's a lot of great photographers who do commercial work as well but predominantly most of the photographers are men and most of them are white men Um, when it comes to the behind the scenes aspect of photography most of the editors are women who are actually hiring people so it's just it's a weird mix that hasn't seemed to even out yet. Yeah, because it's really strange because when you think about the, the photo schools that are out there that are, you know, putting out a lot of the uh, aspiring pro photographers, over half of those schools now are are made up of women. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and a lot of them are, are black, Hispanic women. Well, they may not be the, the great percentage of the students going to those schools, but they are increasing numbers. And like you said, it'll be very interesting to see how things take shape uh, on both sides of the editorial table or the, or the commercial table, because I think that there's, there's something to be said for having that kind of diversity, not just in terms of the people who are making the photographs, but in the photographs themselves, I think there's there's something to be said that those experiences will bring something different to the table. And I think a, a lot of people want something different, particularly the art buyers. They always say they're always looking for something different. And sometimes that can come as a result not so much of the schooling that the person's received or the equipment that they're using, but just the life history they bring to the table and and to the moment that they're making those photographs. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, people from different different ethnic groups, different parts of the world, they have different aesthetics, and they don't necessarily think of art or think of aesthetics or think of environments or think of project ideas in the same way. So they, they definitely will have other ways of looking at the world and looking through the viewfinder and composing images. And I think that's just something that we're going to have to see. We will see a lot more just because, for one thing, the explosion of digital media so is putting the access to image making into a lot more hands throughout the world than ever before. And just the fact that along with that, you have all of these people who are becoming more entrepreneurs when it comes to image making and they are actually creating their own niches and sort of forcing cracks into um, the walls to get in and show their work. So I think it is definitely going to change probably a lot in the next 10 years. Well, tell me about this latest project in which you were photographing iconic African-American women. That must have been both an interesting, challenging, and an intimidating process to to go through. How did you get involved in the project? And and tell us more about what's been involved in creating these, these series of portraits. Well, I got a phone call about a year and a half ago from the International Center of Photography, Photography, and they said they had been contacted by an author who received a book deal about doing a profile book on African-American women, and they wanted to find photographer, a good photographer for the book. So they contacted the school, and the school museum said, you know, these are some people you should consider. Lori Lyons is definitely one of them. So I got the call and was asked to come in and show my work and talk about what I do in the process. And the publisher of the book was Abram's Books. So 
I went in to talk to them about what they thought they wanted to do with the book, who they thought they wanted to include. And basically, in the late 80s, there was a book published called I Dream a World. And that book was extremely popular. And it was a book of approximately 75 black women talking about how they basically overcame issues in their life to get to the point where they are. And it was a big coffee table, black and white, beautifully printed book that sold extremely well. They sold the book for about 20 years. And at the time, there was nothing like that book on the market. So basically what they wanted to do was do an updated contemporary version of that book. So they had women in mind such as Venus Williams, Soledad O'Brien, um, Ruby Dee, um, Patti LaBelle, Nina Shaw, just a wide range of women sort of at the top of their field talking about how they grew up, their faith, their practice, their trials and tribulations, and giving sound advice on getting to where you want to be as a woman in your life. So they wanted, the publishers needed to find a photographer, but they needed a photographer who could sort of balance certain things. And one of the things that attracted them to my work was that I knew how to work in environments. I knew how to work quickly. I had worked with celebrities before, but they didn't want to have a beauty book in the sense of just beautiful headshots with everyone retouched. They wanted the women mm-hmm. to look very accessible, have a very intimate setting, but also have a lot of texture to the photograph. So um, we talked about that. I decided to come on board with it. And then for basically the next year, I was traveling around the country catching up with these women in their private spaces and photographing them. Um, and it was really a dream job because the lineup of people was so interesting. Some of the women I had never even heard of, people who were lawyers and ophthalmologists, who you know, had tons of patents that they've put together, um, people behind the scenes in the film industry, people who are in broadcast television, just like a really wide spectrum of people. And it was basically a master class <laughs> mm. um, to, to have access with these women in their personal spaces as opposed to studios where they could really relax. I could see more of who they were because they felt safe in their own environment. You could see, the, again, the texture of what is of interest to them. They can kind of let their hair down. And you could actually be able to have a conversation with them without them being distracted. So it was a totally, totally different setup than going into a, a commercial studio space. At the same time, with that said, these are extremely busy women, and it takes a long time to get on their calendars. And when you do get on their calendars, you don't have the luxury of having the whole day with them. You may have, you know, up to an hour, and for every person that we photographed, we had to do at least two different setups, and we had to light. Um, we had to, you know, do everything that you would normally do professionally. But with this, because we're going into their homes, I only worked with one assistant, very minimal equipment. I actually shot film for this project, so a lot of them were really intrigued by, you know, me using a film camera. Some of them had never seen haven't seen a film camera in years. They haven't seen Polaroid in years. Mm. (laughs) Um, So going in there and and sort of being able to sort of control the situation in terms of knowing what I needed to do, getting a really quick sketch of what the environment looks like and pulling the photographs together and having the women really relax and feel like they weren't at work um, and just getting them in sort of intimate, candid moments was basically what I needed to come in and do as a photographer. So it was sort of a juggling act of the environment, the time constraints, but then the plus side was the intimacy and the and the sort of master class access to the women. Can, can you give me an example of one of the shots in terms of how that worked out? Because you're going into someone's private space and then you have to make an assessment in terms of light, in terms of background, 
But you also have to consider about, okay, what are those elements that I'm going to put around this subject in order to sort of capture not only a flattering photograph of this person, but a photograph that provides some insight into them. And like you said, you only have an hour for two setups. So can you talk about one example in which, you know, you can walk us through the whole thought process and the choices that you ended up making? Well, I can give you definitely a couple of examples. One was Susan Taylor, who is the CEO, former CEO of Essence Magazine. So we go up to her apartment, and in the apartment, she, you know, basically has a living room. It's not, you know, a grandiose apartment. It's relatively small. There's um, two walls that are all natural light, like a lot of window space coming in. And then she has a coffee table, and she has a couple of books. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> mm. So in that in that sense, you have to go in and realize, okay, which angle am I going to get her from that's going to be the most interesting visually? How can we paint a picture of not just her looking beautiful, but also interesting and also very relaxed? So the first thing I had to think about is, okay, where is the light coming from? I'm going to use flash. I need to be able to balance it with the daylight. But I also, for me, my aesthetic when it comes to lighting is I really don't want you to notice it too much. I want you to get a sense that the person has a glow, but I don't want you looking at what direction the light source is actually coming from. It should sort of be transparent in that regard. So then the next thing I do is I have my assistant, and basically I move my assistant around the room in different areas and take Polaroids to see what the initial setups could possibly be. And at this time, when I'm doing this, you know, the subject is talking to the authors and they're kind of moving around in the background. And you really have to manage to location scout within the space, feel confident about the part of the space that you're going to use, figure out how to light it very quickly, very minimally, and give everyone else in the room the impression that you just absolutely know what you're doing. Everything's working out exactly the way you want it to, and everything is going to be great because they want to feel like you're on top of everything and all they have to do is basically show up in your scene. Mm. So one of the things that I did was I had Susan sit on the couch um, and really just spread out. She has a lot, she's very tall and slender, so I wanted to get her sort of length in line, sort of as a dancer's line would be, so have her spread out, sort of look in other directions of the room so she's not necessarily always frontal towards me. And then on her coffee table, um, there was a great space that was a negative space where you could see her reflection of her face in the coffee table. So I knew looking at that, I wanted to set that whole scene up where you see her sort of reflecting off to the side as if she's thinking about something, but you see her reflection coming into the coffee table glass so it gives a mirrored effect. And then she has a beautiful painting in her living room that is directly above her. So it all kind of comes together as sort of her being a painting in itself with that reflective quality in in glass. Yeah. Well, you, you photograph people with, you know, you have an hour in this particular case or, or around that, but you also make photographs of perfect strangers and you have not hours, you have just maybe minutes, if not just seconds. So which one is more of a challenge? Is it the photograph like this where you have, you know, the pressure of having to deliver a product or is it the challenge of being able to get a really good portrait with only a modest amount of time interacting with someone and literally maybe just seconds to make a photograph? I think the challenge is, and the best training, is to be able to get a strong portrait within just a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds. Because when you go through that process over and over again, shooting on the street especially, your eye gets attuned very quickly to what seems like a good symmetrical composition for you. And then you also, in that couple of minutes, couple of seconds, you have to get the person to relax. You have to get them to sort of pay attention. You have to be on top of how your equipment is going to work. And you have to learn how to trust yourself when your instinct tells you you need to move half an inch to the right. 
and take this shot and just get it and then move it like this to the left and stoop down and take it. So if you're doing that in repetition over and over and over again, sort of on the job, on the spot training, I think that is actually the challenge. And it actually prepared me to be able to go and photograph people and do two shots in an hour. If I hadn't had that sort of street photography background, I think it would be a lot more difficult to go into a commercial setting and be able to pull all of those elements together in a very short amount of time. And especially working with people who have been in the profession for decades, I think that that sort of on-the-street training keeps your nerves calm so you know you can actually get this done and do it well very quickly. Yeah. Well, talk talk to us about your choice to to use film. I mean, you've used it for a variety of different projects, and what's the appeal there? Is it, is it just the way that film looks as opposed to digital, or is it does it influence your whole process when you're shooting? Is that is that why you prefer to use it sometimes? I think it influences the process as I'm shooting it. Is the answer because there's something about for me film cameras where I feel like I am actually photographing. I'm connected to the camera. I like the physicality of loading the film, looking through the viewfinder, focusing the camera. I like the the sound that the shutter makes. I like having uh, the feel of the film winding to the next frame. That's how I started with photography, and I guess it just made a very strong impression of me. Um, I feel like I'm more connected to the moment of clicking the shutter when I'm using a film camera as opposed to working strictly digital. Um, so there's, I guess it's just sort of, for me, the way I started is the way that kind of still pulls me towards the, the film camera. As far as post-production, my post-production is all digital. So what I've done is, like for the inspiration book and for the flag books, I shoot film, medium format, and then I do high-res in the con scans of the negatives, and then I digitally print the images. And I find that when you shoot film and then you print it digitally, it's this really beautiful mixture of the two mediums that gives a very rich final product. You have the luminosity of the film, but then you also have the control and and detail of the digital printing to enhance that image. Um, So I I love that. But realistically, I have to move more towards digital shooting because the turnaround time and the post-production for the scanning and the spotting and all of that is just very time-consuming. So I have to experiment with cameras like the Mamiya cameras that I, I like a lot to find something that feels like a film camera, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm actually shooting digitally. <laughs> you know, one of the fascinating things about your career is that you, you, you're into editorial, you're into commercial advertising work, you're into fine art. And as any photographer will tell you, just marketing yourself for just one of them can be a full-time job. But it seems like you are you have your hands in all three of those arenas. And my question to you is, how do you find the time? How does that happen for you? Because uh, <laughs> is it is it just luck? Is it is it you know what is it that you're doing that allows you to be able to you know delve in all three arenas with such success? I think it's really just me being truly interested in all three arenas. I know that I made a conscious choice at the very beginning of my career, I think even before I really even had a career, when I was a student, is that I wanted to be involved in the field of photography, not just shooting. And when I got one of my first jobs at Magnum Photos, one of the things I was really lucky to learn is that in that particular office, the New York office at that time, all the great photographers were still with Magnum. So it was Eugene Richards and Bruce Davidson and Alex Webb and James Knockway, all of them were coming into the office really regularly. So I could kind of find out how things really worked. 
And one of the things I realized is that in different points of their careers, no matter how famous they were and how incredible their work was, your career kind of moves in ebbs and flows, you know, ebbs and tides. It kind of goes up, it goes down, it levels off, it goes back up. It's always in constant flux. So while you may not be high on top, you still have to have things that work for you and ways to be connected to photography and ways to contribute and learn something. So I realized at a very early age, okay, sometimes I may want to teach, sometimes I may want to do commercial work, sometimes I may want to do documentary work. Um, I just knew that for me, and because I'm curious about all of those things, it was good to always kind of move throughout those different categories or mediums um, when the mood really struck me. And I think that's why I've been able to have some sense of variety in my career. Yeah. But as you brought up with the marketing, it's a hard job. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons why it's a hard job, not only just reaching out to people, is that so many people in this industry are so category-driven. And if you're good at one thing, they may not necessarily believe you can do something else. And if you're good at documentary work, they're not sure if they can trust you to shoot something commercially. It's really silly, but that is how people think. So you have to sort of decide if you're going to make yourself fit into that category or you're going to do what you want to do. And sometimes you'll work in that category and sometimes you'll just be working in a different category. Yeah, there's a there's a joke uh, about uh, a food photographer who has a portfolio and he has this exquisite work of, you know, oranges and kumquats and apples and all these different fruits and they want to consider from a job. But they look at it and they go, there are no bananas in here. Do you think he can shoot a banana? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you one thing. I used to be a photo editor for years, and it was just unbelievable. I would see a portfolio that's just stunning photography, and maybe it's all black and white, but just stunning. And then, you know, someone would say, but can you shoot color? And I was like, yeah, I think they can load color film into their camera. (laughs) Your experience working at Magnum as a photo editor probably provides you some great insight not only into how other photographers particularly master photographers shoot but give you uh, an insight that doesn't come from just looking at their work in a, in a, in a book. That editing process is just a, a great education. Talk to us about what you learned um, from them in that respect and how it influenced your work. Well I have to say this that the magnet photographers really made me want to become a photographer, particularly Bruce Davidson. So when I graduated from school, I knew I was coming back to New York to find Bruce Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> so I <laughs> basically stalked him. <laughs> um, I first went to Magnum to get an internship. And I say that because so many students nowadays don't really want to do internships, but I made a point of doing an internship. And it wasn't about the pay because there really wasn't any pay, but I really wanted to meet those photographers and find out how things really work and not just the sort of fantasy in my head of how photographers were in these amazing places and took all these amazing pictures. So I went there, I got a job as an intern, and that eventually led to me getting a position there that opened up. And it was the best thing in the world because what I did all day was look at the best documentary photography of the latter part of the 20th century. And then on top of that, the people who actually took the images were coming in and out of the office at all times. So I was able to meet the photographers, talk to them, show them a couple of pictures. I didn't really have a proper portfolio. And all day, not only look at the iconic images that we all know and love in the books that they do, but to see the whole roll of film, the contact sheets, the whole roll of 35-millimeter chromes, all of the outtakes, and even just to see the contact sheets and see literally the seconds that led up to them getting the iconic shot. So that experience was invaluable. I mean, it was just like the best thing in the world to ever happen. And again, when you're looking at great work, it just trains your eye all day. And then to be able to 
ask these photographers, well, how did you do that? Well, how did you get a story in Newsweek? Well, how, what kind of cameras do you use? Well, how do you protect your film when you're on location? Well, how do you know how to meet people and get around if you don't speak the language? How do you find assistants who help you do that? Like all these things that they don't teach you in school mm-hmm. is really takes years of experience. So to be able to tap into that knowledge was just the best thing ever. I learned so much by working there. Yeah. Well, my last question is I always ask my guests to recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I think someone somewhat recently discovered in the last couple of years is a photographer named Ernesto Bazan, who is just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant photographer. He's pretty well established, but he was relatively new to me. I think that the images that he makes are so poetic and so beautiful. He does a lot of work in Cuba and in Brazil, and he teaches a lot of photo workshops as well. And just the way he talks about his photography and the experiences that he has, of course, again, for me, it's about the adventure and the environment, which he really relates to. I think that he's just an amazing, amazing storyteller um, at this time. Other photographers that I really like are people like Jamel Shabazz, who's really well known for um, his book, Back in the Days. But he also did a lot of documentary work and portraiture work all around the world, um, and he's very dedicated to his craft. Um, as far as some of the younger photographers who I think that are making an impact, um, there is, um, my words are escaping me right now, um, Latoya Ruby Frazier, who's doing really amazing work, a body of work that she shot, again, of her sort of autobiographical work shot in Pennsylvania about her community that's sort of part of the Rust Belt and what's going on there. Um, I think she's really making an impact with storytelling at this time with photography. And then there's also types of photography that I just like that are like sort of fashion images and album covers and things like that. So I think there's a lot out there for people to see. Um, but there's, I think the people who are really great sort of stand out. Yeah. Well, where can people find out more about all the things that you're doing? You can check my website, which is laurielyons.com, um, and that will have some updated information and images and video and my blog um, and also my online travel publication, which is called Nomads Magazine. And that features a lot of artists and their sort of behind-the-scenes, on-the-road stories of traveling and making art all around the world. Great. Well, thank you, Laurie, for your time and uh, for your great inspiration. I I loved having that chance to finally sit down and talk with you. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.